You're listening to the Letters to My Younger Soul podcast, where the authors from the book and invited guests continue the conversations to their soul. There's healing and reflection, restoration and joy. There's forgiveness, resolution for the sadness gone before. When I let us to my another Letters to My Younger Soul podcast. I am your host Maureen and today I am joined by another one of our wonderful co-authors for the, from the Letters to My Younger Soul book and that is Wilhelmina Joseph Lowenthal. Did I say that correctly? Absolutely, bang on. Perfect, wonderful. Welcome Wilhelmina, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for inviting me. You are so welcome. So um, how I kind of start a lot of these interviews, because everybody's coming from all over the world and, and coming with some really interesting names. So does your name in particular have a meaning? Not as far as I know, no. It's, um, uh, I think where it comes from, the um, I, I like to think that, well, the name Wilhelmina has Dutch and German connotations, which right. I'm not particularly happy with. <laughs> I'm even less happy, I suppose, with the fact that the middle bit, Elmina, you can see Elmina in there, can't you? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Elmina is a place um, in Ghana, on the coast, on the on the coast of Ghana, where there is a castle, and um, built by the Portuguese, and it was a, fla- a slave fort. Wow. And um, it's quite famous, slave fort Elmina Castle. So um, I, I can take my pick. I can either be German, Dutch, or come from a slave fort. So neither of them is, I mean, none of them is particularly um, in, inspiring. <laughs> <laughs> that is so, I think that's that's probably one of the best um, explanations that I've heard so far. I mean, it's not the actual meaning, but those connotations. Wow. Mm-hmm. Wow. I, sometimes I ask, does it fit you? But clearly this doesn't, or at least you no, no. don't want it to. That's why when I was in Ghana, um, I decided to, um, to to make my own name, or to find my own name, and I just went with Ga. I went with the, with the traditions of the Ga people. Um, they have day names as well. They give you a name on the day that you were born. And I was born on a Thursday. And... Um, the name for a woman born on a Thursday is Ya. W, I mean, Y double A. Ya. Wow. Like in Ya Santiwa. So, yeah. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. Wow. So, just, you know, that's the thing about um, names, isn't it? That you yeah. just, you're not there when the choosing is going yeah, on. Absolutely. Um, I remember I, I always hated my name, largely because. Anybody that I knew, like there was lots of Nicholas and Michelles and Vickies and and things like that when I was growing up. There was no Maureens. Well, there were a few Maureens, but they were always somebody's mum. 
Yeah. So, <laughs> I, so always somebody's mum, and she was generally from Ireland. Mm-hmm. So I, um, I couldn't see myself in them at all. Uh, and so I was very unhappy about that. Uh, I equally didn't like my middle name, so there was no swapping those out. So Because <laughs> mid, my middle name felt just as old. Um, I've since found out that my middle name has a better meaning than my uh, my first name, and so I, I contemplate. But, you know, hey, I, I think I'm Maureen now. And, and yeah. Now. Actually, <laughs> Wilhelmina is actually my second name. It's not even my first name. Oh, wow, okay. Um, <laughs> don't even, the first name's even worse. I think. <laughs> I'm like a nun. So you don't even want to go there. <laughs> They didn't even want to go there. In oh. this Roman Catholic um, um, Caribbean people, you know, they got stately names. They thought, you know what? Let me not. Let me not go there. <laughs> Talking of which, it's I don't know if um, where you're from. It was a thing. I'm not even sure it was a thing where uh, my my mum's parents were from, but uh, certainly, you know, when you add the Lynn onto everything, there seemed to be a thing where they added Lynn to the end of every name. Um, um. Um, yeah, no, in, in Dominica, it would be I-N-E. Oh, so, Instead of being Alexandra, you'd be Alexandrine. <laughs> you know, or instead of being Victoria, it'd be Victorine. Oh, wow. <laughs> you know, instead of being Phil, Phil, Phil or something, you'd be Philamine. You understand? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <And laughs> everything is I-N-E on the end of everything. And that's where they took that from the French. But in saying that, <sighs> I tell people... Um, because where I live is very highly um, Irish. We have a very strong Irish contingent here. Um, I tell them Wilhelmina. They hear Philomena. Right. So I just know it's Wilhelmina. Oh, hello, Philomena. I think they were. Well, names. So yeah, you just it just becomes it just becomes what it is. You know, yeah. You it's better being being called Wilhelmine Dream or something. You know, so. It's true. We could have a whole podcast on on just names. Yes, but they are they are very important. Some places that they're extremely important. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, you're in England, mm-hmm. um, in the UK here with me, um, I, but I wonder if there is a, somewhere else maybe that you visited in the world or or where you were perhaps born, um, where you'd prefer to live, and and is there a, is there a reason why you prefer to live there? Um, I'm torn. I love London. I do, I do, I do. When I when I'm out of London, I think, oh God, I want to be in London. Um, but I hate London. <laughs> I hate this country at the same time. <laughs> I know. I think you must understand this. Um, and the places that I'd rather be when I'm contemplating, um, if London was a person and I'm contemplating murder, <laughs> um, I really want to be at home in Dominica. But not from my home village. Right. That is a big mistake. Um, so I'd go and live somewhere else in Dominica, but I'd only be there for like three months at a time. And then I'd maybe go and live in my house that I don't actually have in Ghana. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that's where I would be for the rest of the time. So three months um, in, in Dominica, three months in, um, in, um, in Ghana, maybe four months in the UK to get my, my health checks. <laughs> wow, what a life. Yeah, that would be my, that's, that's my ideal life. Wow. Yeah. Wow. That does sound ideal in, yeah. indeed. Almost uh, island hopping. Yeah. Yeah. Just because those are my identities. Yes. Yeah. Interesting. So 
what do you do now? You uh, said a little bit before uh, when we were talking earlier um, about working in uh, mental health. So what largely do you do? And do you really enjoy that work? You know, um, I'm still really shocked that they pay me to do this. Wow. Yeah. I mean, the first time, the first year or so, I've, I felt like a real fraud because I felt, you know what, Will, you know, that I'm enjoying this so much. <laughs> and they're paying me. Maybe I should tell them that I'm enjoying it. Um, that way they'll, they know, they will be able to pay What me. exactly do you do? Um, it's not that something that I'm, I'm a trainer. Right. I work, okay. I work for the NHS. Um, I work in what is called a recovery and wellbeing college. Um, they've been going on now for about 20 years, maybe a little bit less. Um, and they are for people who have um, mild to moderate and severe and enduring mental health difficulties, mm-hmm. um, ostensibly to help people to learn how to live and manage their condition and to get the best um, quality and potential out of their lives as possible. Lovely. Um, and that's what I do. And I do it from the perspective of somebody who has and still does use mental health services as well. So um, when they look at me, they think, oh, my God, you use mental health services? And I say, yes. Um, I've used secondary and um, primary mental health services, i.e., yes, I've been in hospital, I've been on mental health units, you know, um, and um, and I've been able to hold down a job basically two days a week um, for the last 10 years or so. That's probably the most I could do, actually. Um, and thoroughly enjoy my work. Um, and I just find it really inspiring and really, the fact that I can inspire people that, to have hope that, you know, that their life has not stopped um, because they have a mental health diagnosis or mental health condition and they can get an excellent quality of life just by getting to grips with their management and, get, and understanding themselves better. Really yeah. refreshing, actually, um, to hear that there's even a role like that. I spent a few years working in uh, mental health services and I was always um, very keen and did end up for a few years as well working in um, early uh, psychosis mm-hmm. um, services and found it when I in initially entered into um, the, the world of mental health, I found it quite disheartening that it seemed as if there was no once you'd kind of had it for any kind of length of time or been living with it for any length of time, there was, it was almost as if there was no hope. People were more interested Mm -hmm. in maintaining. I still had hope for recovery, whereas everybody else around just still was more interested in just kind of maintaining. Mm -hmm. There there didn't seem to be any interest in advancing. And um, initially I was there as a support worker and it felt as if some of my colleagues kind of sent me out with all of my high hopes as if to say, okay, we won't burst your bubble. You go out there and try and, you know, save the world. We'll just sit here and write up the notes afterwards. You know, that's kind of how it felt. And I mean, I didn't let that bother me, but it's, it's wonderful to know that they are, beginning to fund more appropriately the support that's needed in and around those um, services and giving people hope that just like, you know, if you um, lose a limb or something, you Mm -hmm. alter your lifestyle, but that doesn't mean your life has to stop. You just change it accordingly to fit 
so that you can manage, like you said, you know, two two days a week as opposed to a full week of five because you know that that's not sustainable to you. Yeah, absolutely. Even yeah. even that, you know, accommodating two days a week is something that, you know, 20 or 30 years ago just wouldn't have been um, available. And you, and, you know, and, you know, for five years before that, I um I worked on um what you know as a zero hours contract, but that was within the NHS. So I have safety. I could work the exact amount of hours that I needed to work or I wanted to work. They offered me this, and I said no, I can't do it. Um, and I could say yes or no. Um, and then they said, well, you know, we really want you on the on the core team. Um, we've um we've created this job, and you want me to apply for it. Wow. <laughs> you know, um, and who would have thought that back in the day, twenty years ago, that an employer would actually employ someone with mental health difficulties. Yeah. Maureen, I spent six years unemployed. Yes. I couldn't get a job. Obviously, you've you've kind of shared um, quite a bit there about your 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 past. And my next question was gonna was going to ask you um, if you could do it all, all over again. Would you take a different career path? And if so, why? Oh yeah, I spent I spent too long um um getting myself in the hot water in the first place you know um the job i did before probably before i worked in um in mental health was probably what caused me um which which exacerbated my um my mental health condition I, i had a mental health condition before but that doing that job for 10 years i think i did it um i was in in um in um, arts education, I, I worked in um, in music, in, in African and Caribbean music. Um, it was, you know, it was very intense. And I worked all hours, God send, you know. I mean, I used to go into my office at midnight. I went, I went, I went into my office once on Boxing Day just to get a piece of quiet. And um, the phone rang, and I answered the phone, you know, um, just you know, sort of um, kind of on autopilot. Yeah, I was on autopilot, and somebody asked my boss. <laughs> and I, I said, I said, but it's Boxing Day. You know what they said? But you're there, you know, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know. Oh um, so just you know, <laughs> um, yeah. So that really exacerbated my my mental health condition. That's what I ended up in there being in hospital and all kinds of stuff, you know. So yeah, I would definitely change that and, and not go down that route. I, if if I'd known, I probably would have. Um, done something more um, um, self-compassionate to myself. Right, yeah. right. Lift on the, burn the candle at both ends of what I tried to do, yeah. It's kind of, um, it's probably, if we look deep enough, an underlying theme that runs through the book um, that many of us weren't very compassionate towards um, ourselves. And I think actually that's what inspired the book really is being around hearing conversations or having conversations with individuals who just couldn't almost they didn't say it directly but you could hear in the way that they were talking about things that they just hadn't forgiven themselves Mm -hmm. and without you know really thinking about the fact that you were a child what whatever decision you made in those circumstances, you didn't know better. You were very reliant on people around you to kind of mm-hmm. show you the way. And 
either they didn't or they were part of the problem. But whatever it is, you were nothing but a child. You were much younger. You lacked wisdom. So you have to look back and forgive yourself because if that was somebody else, same age, you wouldn't talk to them the way that you talk to yourself now. Absolutely. You're much more forgiving. Yeah, absolutely. And that's and that's the journey that I've been on over the last since I started working in the in, in the recovery college, I'm um, starting to understand about um the um the method of recovery is not so much that like you have a broken leg, you know, you have a broken leg and then it, it gets better and you go yes. on your way. Yes. But with, with, mental, with mental health, it's not that your mental health suddenly gets better. Um, quite often, mental health conditions are, are long-term. Um, you're not going to have to... You're not, you, 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 you don't want to wait for the possibility that it's going to go away. You want to get on with your life. Mm. So it's being able to work around your symptoms, work around your, um, your issues, um, and, be, and to be able to recognise... Um, the things that can't, that impact yes. on you, um, and how they impact on you, um, and the and the strategies that you might need in coping um, as well um, to be able to get around those times, um, and you know who to have around you, um, who not to have around you, because you have those toxic relationships as well that mm-hmm. can impact on your on your well being, um, and just learning those things about yourself. So it's a lot of reflection. Um, it's a lot, it takes a lot of work. To be honest, what, what you're describing there sounds like the journey that many of us have to take in our life, established mental health issues or not. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> because, you know, you're talking about toxic people, and um, but we all have to get to a point where we make those decisions and say, hold on a second, this looks nice and shiny on the outside, but it's mm. not really doing me any favours. Yeah. I think I need to move away from this. I mean, yeah. if you've been friends with somebody, say, for 20 years or 30 years, oh, this is my really best friend, you know, but when you examine that friendship, for like 20 years, that person always puts you down, <laughs> that person always puts themselves first, that person always wants you to, to support them, but they're never there to support you. And go, hang on a minute, is this really my friend? <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. absolutely, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. So right, so right. So you um, wrote a very moving letter. Did, were you actually a writer before you got involved in a project or was this your first kind of attempt at doing any writing? Um, I wrote, um, I mean, when I was at school, I wrote and I always got good grades for my writing. Uh, but that's as far as it went. And then um, during lockdown, I, I go to a particular centre that supports um, people of African and Caribbean heritage um, with, with their mental health, their specialist centre. And um, we were doing creative writing at the centre. And um, at the beginning of lockdown, we moved everything on online. So literally from March of last year, I started writing again seriously. And, um, and, and I've realised that it was a way of helping me to um, assuage a lot of the feelings that were building up. Um, literally, I started getting affected by um, COVID bereavements straight mm. away, from April onwards, all the way down wow. to um, August of this year. I've just been impacted by bereavement um, and trauma constantly. And writing was a way of helping me to get through that. Um, it was a great way of support. So, um, yes, I suppose I could describe myself as a writer. Um, it's only when I look back now on that journey 
as I can say, yes, I am. I am a writer. I was a bit embarrassed to call myself a writer before, but yeah, I am a writer. No, you own that. And would you say that that's why um, you wrote your letter because it was that therapy for you? Yeah. Um, there was always a burning issue that I was had in the back of my mind um, that I never actually got to deal with. I was always putting it aside. And the letter allowed me to explore that. Um, it actually allowed me to say, okay, well, clear your desk. This is an issue you need to sit down with. And when I first started writing the letter, I was really quite lighthearted. Mm. And I didn't really want to go into too much detail. And, um, and I still didn't go into that much detail, but I did actually say, you know what, if I'm going to write this, I need to sort of sit down and write it properly and not be quite so flippant about it as I started off being. So I said, okay, you, you know what, let me be a little bit, bit more serious here and um, address the issues, mm. address the real issues. And I suppose the main issue um, throughout that letter was my, my relationship with my mother, not so much my dad, but with, but with my mother, I think that was the main, the main issue. And how um, my impact, my, my upbringing, it impacted on us because I have, I have siblings. Mm. Um, and then how I later, um, how all of us later um, um, came to un an understanding about uh, our parents and the way they raised us from mm. being really resentful of it. So I suppose like quite a lot of um, people of my generation would have been resentful of their, of their upbringing. Um, Coming to, coming to understand why our parents acted the way they did, really. And to reclaim our parents, yeah, even though they're gone, to reclaim them. So I have a so much better relationship with my mum, even though she's gone. But that's that mental relationship. It's interesting, you know, you've, you've picked on or, or highlighted so many points in what you've said there, um, you know, and talking about that's so powerful in that statement of reclaiming your uh, parents and I think that there's lots of people that could still do with going on that journey even though their parents may still be with them mm. I think that there is a <laughs> there is there is probably something in the relationship that although they spend time together they don't really claim them mm -hmm. but they more tolerate them and actually, you, you want to get to a point where you can reclaim your parents because you have an understanding of why they did what they did. Yeah. But also, you know, that area of trauma that I think goes unrecognised, especially in the uh, kind of African diaspora, um, you know, where we see a lot that where we've gone to, in fact, from the African countries, as well as those of us who were taken to the Caribbean, that same pattern of parents leaving children behind mm -hmm. and going off for a better life, which we know in hindsight or with age and wisdom was about benefiting the whole family. Um, however, it doesn't mean that it wasn't a traumatic experience for the child or the parents to suddenly be exactly. Mm -hmm. um, without your primary caregiver being there and being left with, um, you know, a, 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 a grandparent or even uh, a stranger, as I heard somebody saying, you know, that um, it's, 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 
you you just we just overlook it and think oh well it was for the it was for the best you know that we're going to make a better life and yes we can appreciate that but we also need to appreciate that as a child that you just you can't get your head around that and nobody ever sits and explains it to you you just end up here I remember my mum sharing a story of coming and she had gone through this whole transformation I mean there was about if I can remember rightly there was probably about five years or so I think between her her mum leaving and her being brought over to England but she said in that time her grandmother had taken her through a complete transition where by nine you know she was cooking and cleaning and ironing for herself yeah you know and her mum was amazed now it at the time when she was telling the story, even my response was, oh, wow, you know, look at that. And, and you can see some of the, the joy in the fact that she was such an independent young girl. But when you really unpick that, that's a whole, that's a big transition to go through without your mum, you know. It's, yeah. and, and, then, and, and if you look at it from the other way, it might be in a fantastic achievement for a nine-year-old, but that's a, that's a childhood gone. yes. Yes. So what happened to her childhood? My mum told me, my mum my grew up in Dominica. Um, by the time she was six, and she was the eldest, by the time she was six, she was cooking, cooking and cleaning and looking after her siblings while her parents went to their garden up on the hill so they could you know, grow food and stuff. She, at six, was the, was the responsible one to look after the rest of the kids, you know, and that was just expected. My mum didn't have a childhood. Oh. You see, so we grew up with my mum's understanding of raising kids, pretty mm-hmm. much like the, the grandmother you just spoke about. You know, knowing how to iron and cook and to and to and to wash using a washboard, not even a washing machine. You know, um, and that and that's how my mum saw girls' upbringing should be, and that's what she tried to impose on us. But we weren't in England. We weren't in Dominica. <laughs> you understand different cultures mm-hmm. we were seeing our friends having a childhood our friends the same age our peers having a childhood yeah we were, so we were you know we had this duality um and it was really difficult being english outside the house and being dominican inside the house you know um and it was a constant struggle so again a whole nother podcast all of its own yeah that, that conversation we're talking about the letters to my younger soul book and and the, and very hopeful of the impact that this book will have on other women and young women um, around the world who have an opportunity to read it. So on that basis, have you read a book that has changed your thinking or really inspired you or one that's really just stayed with you? Um, the one that's, um, oh, it's on my, because I, because my concentration went, went and shot to pieces, um, because, um, mental health conditions can do that to people. Mm. And, um, so I tend to listen to, um, audio books, um, it's from Maya Angelou oh. and it's called Letters, I think, called Letters to My Daughters. Yes, I've a seen letter it. To, a letter to my daughter. And the thing is, you see, my Angela didn't have a physical daughter, a biological daughter. Um, when she wrote a letter to my daughter, 
she's actually talking to us. Wow. Um, and to the women that she met that she considered daughterly. Um, and one of them actually is um, Oprah Winfrey. Um, she's one of the examples wow. of her daughterly women. Um, and I've been reading this letter to my daughter and um, and I hear her voice. She had that particular voice, my Angela. It's absolutely distinctive. Yes. And um, and I think, you know what? Every woman should hear this. Wow. Every woman should hear this book. You know, and um, and that, and it reminded me a bit of the projects that we that the letter to my younger soul, really, um, because she didn't have any daughters, and she wouldn't wish that she had. Um, and the and the and the thing about it was is that she wished that someone could have done the same for her. Wow. Yeah. And you know what the trials and tribulations that she went through in, mm. in her life as well. So and and she, for her to come out with that magnificent outlook. Um, yeah. So if I have the the tiniest amount of influence on someone, just one person that Maya Angelou has had on women, particularly, I mean, men as well, but women, particularly, who've heard her words around the world, then I'll be happy with my life. Mm. Yeah. That's good. That's powerful. Thank yeah. you for that. So, do you, we know that you spent some of your childhood in Dominica. Oh, and I, I, I came to England. I was two years and 10 months. Oh, so a very small amount of your childhood. <laughs> very small amount of my childhood, yeah. Tiny amount yeah. of childhood in Dominica. Um, okay, so the majority of it in sunny England. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, do you have a uh, favourite, it must have been very interesting, but do you have like a favourite or a, a childhood memory that really stands out for you? Oh, God. Ah, uh, you know, whenever I think of my childhood in this country, I think of it with hatred. Oh dear! <laughs> <laughs> well, I, mean, I think about. I mean, funnily enough, I actually tried to think about this a couple of days ago. A happy memory of my childhood in England. Um, and it's just a really weird things of moments of absolute happiness, where. If you actually looked at it, um, it, I shouldn't have been happy in those situations. Mm. But you know where you can grab happiness from a situation that no one else would tolerate? Um, I used to play on the bomb sites, Maureen, and I got great love and enjoyment playing with my friends on the bomb sites. And I used to play on British Rail Wasteland um, with barbed wire and <laughs> deep holes full of dirty, greasy water and, and you know, bits of furniture with nails in. And um, we used to play runouts and all kinds of stuff. Um, yeah, so it's, it's kind of strange. But I, I enjoyed those times when I really shouldn't have. It's, it's interesting, isn't it? Because yeah. we I, we often see um, memes on social media about this 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 area that you know now it feels like the pendulum has just swung way over to the other side. You know, you've got the days of um, 
playing on British rail wasteland with nails, <laughs> rusty nails, and you know, God knows what else. You're never gonna drown. Some of those pools <laughs> were so deep. If you fell in, you're not coming out again. And then, to, and then today, you've got where you know kids are not allowed. You know, they don't even have climbing frames. So if somebody drops off a, God forbid, they should drop off a climbing frame in school. They immediately take it down. In fact, some schools won't even put them up for fear mm-hmm. of children no. falling off them. Um, and so it feels like that kind of risk and danger. And, and, and actually where I guess maybe children, some children anyway, develop their uh, judgment skills and, and, or, uh, or, or their, 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 their way to manage risk, you know, in all, all mm. that play. And we've kind of taken that away. And obviously it's, we want to keep children safe and no children, child should have to play with rotten nails. And because uh, for all those that survived, I'm sure there's a few that had some <laughs> very nasty accidents. Tell me. You know, yeah. um, or, or playing on wasteland. <laughs> but, you know, it's, it's, it's so interesting. Like I said, that the pendulum just seems to have swung. And I wonder if we'll ever get to a place where we're in a happy medium where it's not wasteland, but at the same time, they're able to climb trees and take risks and just have that sense of adventure um, that children really long for. Um, and we see it in their play all the time. Yeah. I, think. yeah. I mean, I, 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 yesterday we went to one of these um, um, Royal Horticultural Society gardens and they have some really ancient trees and you can see, I can see myself climbing over those mm. trees as a child. Oh, that tree looks good to climb. I think you've got them, you know, well, you're 62, man. Something <laughs> <laughs> like climbing trees. <laughs> it's that unmet need from childhood. <laughs> <laughs> you know. Got to... um, and the first thing I, I can see, that tree was a really good tree to climb. And, and that's how I was brought up, you know, straight away being able to assess something, whether it's good to play on or not. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Fantastic. So to um, kind of come to an end, I don't like to say, use the word end, but rounding things up, my final question for you is whether or not you have a quote, um, a favourite quote, and why is it your favourite quote? Oh, yeah, I do, actually. Um well, actually, my, my favourite quote is um, it's from another Maya Angelou quote. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if I could actually quote it off my heart. Because I, I normally have it written in my diary, but um, for some reason I changed my diaries. Obviously, I changed my diaries last year, and I haven't rewritten it. Uh, and then she's, she's talking about... Um, let me see if I can remember it properly, actually. I, I hate to misquote the woman. <laughs> After all, she went to all this trouble to actually say it properly, and I'm like, I don't want to paraphrase her. Um, she was very good at finding um, just the right thing to say um, for a person who's in a particular situation, and it and it's one of those one of those seeds that falls falls on fertile ground. Mm. Be is it be a rainbow in someone else's cloud? That's the one. That's the one. That's the one. <laughs> and that's that's my job. That is my job to be the rainbow. Yeah, that's my job. Yeah. So my your favorite Maya Angelou, your favorite quote is by uh, Dr. Maya Angelou, and I don't blame you whatsoever. Be a rainbow in somebody else's cloud. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. People come with uh, come to me with their clouds, and they leave with a little bit of a rainbow. Fantastic. Yeah. We all love a rainbow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, 
Wilhelmina. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for sharing so much. Thank you for being a contributor to the Letters to My Younger Soul book. Uh, you have been a real joy to speak to today and hopefully we'll speak to you again in the future. Okay, wonderful. Look, look forward to it. Letters to My Younger Soul, the book is available now online wherever they sell books. And to join us in gifting a book or books to organisations around the world that work with women young and older, visit our gift a book page at www.eivpublishing.com. Thank you. Let's talk about